Hey everybody, and welcome to the summary session or of our podcast. You how many there were then, didn't you, Brett? You I did. Forgot the number. <laughs> I did yeah. forget how many there. It's been a few. Yeah, <laughs> there has been a lot on this topic of droplet airborne and contact precautions. And uh, we've got Phil and myself and Martin, and we're going to try and synthesize or summarize what we've heard across these podcasts to date. And before we get onto that, I just want to say a big thanks to all our uh, speakers and guests that we've had on over the past few weeks. We've really had to try and compact this down into a couple of weeks and really grateful for people to give up a few minutes of their time just to be able to help with this series. We hope you've also enjoyed them. Um, but before we do that, we might flick to... Uh, well, who wants to go first? Phil, do you want to tell us about... Um, what you, what's been one of the memorable things or one of the key things that you think you've heard from this uh, series that we've done so far? Thanks, Brett. I think um, it's it's been really insightful. I've, I've been fortunate enough to speak to a few of the clinicians who are working in the you know the deep dark parts of COVID and in various parts of acute care and and long term care facilities and the experiences that they had and the issues that they had with the droplet precautions and airborne precautions. And I think my general sense is that most people seems to be thinking that these categories that we like to put people in and we like to, you know, practice by categories, that it's really doesn't work for infection prevention and control because I think as we've heard from a number of our speakers, there's that spectrum and you know there's there's one extreme to the other and it's very difficult to have a cutoff point as to when to bring in these particular interventions so it need we need to be thinking about spectrums and we need to thinking about a continuum of you know of infectious precautions mm. i think and my overall general sense is that there tends to be general agreement that we need to review the current paradigms and we need to be thinking about new ones uh, that can mm. best protect our healthcare workers and our patients. We might come to the new ones in a minute, but um, the other thing that I've heard, not necessarily in so many words, but perhaps indirectly, I think there are a lot of people who have been really burnt and worn out um, having this discussion or not having this discussion or trying to have this discussion. Uh, and and I, I think... There's been some really strongly held views on both sides, not and I don't want to call sides, but on for different perspectives. And I think some people have found that really hard to navigate through over the last year or two, regardless of what their personal views were, and being able to to have an open discussion about this. I think people have found that a little bit challenging. I think. What do you What do you think, Martin? Really tricky. I mean, unfortunately. You put up a scientific view on Twitter, you immediately get pulled down by all the people who have extremely polarised views in a not particularly pleasant way. Some of them are, you know, not healthcare workers and they're people with mm. an agenda. Uh, and I know many people have, have put up what they felt was a fairly innocent and rational point and they've been absolutely castigated for it. So that, that's been really tricky, I think. Social media is a very useful thing, but actually in the context of, of this, it hasn't always been particularly helpful, I don't think, unfortunately. Mm. And, you know, it's a good way to get a message over, but it's some, it's a good way to get yourself burnt. And I know a couple of very eminent IPC folk who actually came off Twitter and deleted their account uh, mm. and have, have actually gone back, but, you know, sort of a much quieter way. 
Yeah. Um, so that's that's been a bit disappointing because this polarization, we you know, we're all going to have to come together and we're going to need to have discussions about this in a non-emotional way when this has started to settle and that may be some time yet but that's that's a, a difficult thing really because you know, I think it was um, Belinda who said you know, we've got to we've got to make decisions about when they when people are less emotional about this and um, the polarization has been um, mm. difficult i think yeah and i think you know john otter made a, a a similar point to this i think um in, in his podcast and i think you know, some of the suggestions we heard from from him for example were different terminology so that people are not trying to refer back to something that's already been used because there's already fixated views on that terminology whether it be droplet or aerosol or whatever it might be and to come up with some new words to describe what we're trying to achieve to take out some of that um heat so that was, I think, an interesting um, thing I heard, and, and probably a sort of along the same lines. Ramon Shaban mentioned about just talking, and probably at times talking about similar things, but from different disciplines, we're meaning different things, or well, we're meaning the same thing, but talking about them using different terminology, and uh, and a bit of set sense of confusion about that. So I think that's um, that was an interesting point as well there were was, was some other really good points as well like it's not just the organism mm. it's the setting mm. you know what's your room ventilation like what's your local humidity like you know what's your airflow through your building like in the in that particular type of setting and the number of people you might find in you know there's a lot of physics involved in this in transmission mm. and i'm not sure by putting things into small boxes we can say that applies in absolutely every setting because you could easily have a hospital which has fantastic ventilation and they're not going to have so much of an issue and another one which has terrible ventilation and yet people are doing IPC well but the ventilation is absolutely awful yeah. and trying to fit one set of guidelines into a healthcare system that has buildings dating from Queen Victoria's time to you know a very modern hospital it's a very difficult thing to do really yeah you know it's a good point and sidetrack uh, for a minute, as usual, as we usually do on this podcast. But if you think about um, contact precautions and the use of gown and gloves in some instances, uh, where some studies have shown not beneficial to use those, but the context is important because some of those studies have been done where there's been essentially 100% side rooms. So, you know, it's a very different context to, to having shared spaces. And I'm, and I'm not... Mm -hmm. I can't want to get the ins and outs about gloves and gowns. That's a, that's another podcast series for another day. But, um, but I think, you know, the point is right. It's really, um, really important to think about the diversity in the setting. I know we talk about risk assessments, so that's essentially what it is. But, but it's that the diversity of all those different things that are going to be really important to consider. Yeah. I it's think surprising the point. number of people who said get dump contact precautions as well. So I thought, I thought that yeah. was a good point. Sorry, Phil, I interrupted you there. Yeah, no, no, I was going to say, I think that's a really good point because it's, we, we talk about this individual risk assessment procedure that we're supposed to go through, but we really still continue to put people in, in categories. Um, so I think there's a bit of work to do there. Um, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> wouldn't be the first time, Phil. Excellent. Right. No, it wouldn't be the first time. It is late in the There's one in there somewhere. There's one in there somewhere. I just see it sneak out of your left ear. You know, the other thing, I, I think it might have been John Otter, um, but mentioned, you know, the infectious dose component to this too. And it's it was something that was really tightly held at the start of COVID-19. You know, people were talking about, well, what's the infectious dose relative to the type of risk and precautions? And we drifted away a lot from that. But if we're thinking about 
how we set new paradigms, it's still an important concept to throw in the mix along with all the other things that we've just spoken about. Because we might have something that is as a long-term range in terms of infectious particle uh, transmission uh, process and might have a very, very low infective dose to be able to cause an issue. Or any mixture of those two combinations you know, require a really high infectious dose to actually cause clinical infection or even asymptomatic infection. And so we still don't need to throw all those types of things out. We still need to be thinking about uh, those intricacies for different infectious diseases. The thing is, they seem to shift, though, don't they? Because as mm. the variants change, they seem mm. to become more infectious. Now, that was that that the site of the target site of the organism changed particularly, or was that that the infectious dose changed particularly, mm. or that the fact that people stopped wearing masks in you know in uh, trains and wherever, um, so they were being exposed to more mm. <laughs> of the organism, which would infect them. You know, it just mm. I find it. Almost impenetrable, to be honest. Yeah, at times. that's right. So I think I think the other thing we heard of broadly for me is that people were saying, "We need whatever we come up with it has to be simple, mm-hmm. and it has to be something that healthcare workers can implement and be practical." And so I think we heard a little bit about contact and this concept of contact and respiratory protection. Would it? And then people mm-hmm. sort of called it different things, and they. I think they're generally. That's what I was hearing across many of the podcasts was this sort of concept of bundling this in together and having contact and then respiratory-based precautions. Yeah. And within that respiratory-based precautions, uh, we I think we had different views. There were some that were saying perhaps respiratory is respiratory, so, you know, go with what we know and assume that it's going to be fine particles. And, um, and, and others thinking about that need to risk assess within that particular frame to think about all the things that might constitute or impact on the type of precaution that you might need that's good in theory makes it very hard to to implement um well it's tricky though isn't it because you know respiratory tb who would think of putting on gloves and a plastic apron yeah we never consider that to be contact at all no and yet there are likely to be elements of covid that are potentially contact because of touching a surface and then maybe touching a mucous membrane which would be fine if you could get hand hygiene up to the 3,000% that we always think it is mm. because then you'll be okay with a face shield and, and a mask and clean your hands before, you know, when you take your pee off and just don't touch your mucous membranes. But in reality, back on planet Earth, people don't comply. I hate that word. But people don't always follow the guidance that well. So is that us not selling the message properly or is it that the guidance is wrong? You know, sometimes mm. there is maybe a more mixed, nuanced way. And we heard the word nuance quite a lot, actually, when we were mm. talking to people. So there is there is this continuum, which is another popular word. And I think a good, open, honest discussion about, okay, really how could this individual organism transmit from that particular person? Because you might have somebody who's positive sitting in the corner of a bay, breathing quietly through their nose, not raising their voice, not coughing, not shouting, not singing, What's the transmission risk from them? Whereas to somebody else who's maybe confused, who's shouting the head off in the other corner of the room, who's positive, they're going to be a more of a transmission risk. I mean, I'm I'm really querying AGPs to be absolutely honest, because breathing is is an aerosol generating procedure, mm-hmm. you know, an aerosol be- generating behaviour. And I really like that in some of the Australian papers. People talk about aerosol generating behaviours, yeah. because unless mm. you're dead, you're producing an aerosol. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I don't 
disagree with you, Martin. I think the hard part about that sort of differentiation about someone who's quietly sitting in the corner and not doing anything um, versus, you know, Mr. Smith who's shouting and, and coughing is that that kind of thing is very difficult to implement. And people's, uh, yeah. people's course within any kind of infectious disease is going to change. And mm. um, their behaviours might change um, as mm. other things settle in when, once they're in hospital. So, so then you would say, well, why don't we just assume that we need to go to the highest level of protection for anything that we would warrant that could be transmitted via that route? But on the flip side, we, we also heard was things like the need to be able to communicate effectively with people and patients. Um, we see it a fair bit on Twitter. There's quite a bit of discussion and I've seen lots of clinicians on Twitter talk about, I took my face mask off because I was giving someone some horrendous news and mm. I did my own little assessment. They'd tested negative you know, that morning. They're not symptomatic and I just needed to show and communicate as a human um, this horrible news that I might be giving them. That could be what I heard seen on Twitter or they're having really intimate discussions with people about highly sensitive things where ultimately there needs to be that human contact and trust and all those types of things that are built up. So, you know, they're all really valid, important considerations. I think we've got a lot of work to do yeah. to make respiratory protection better for healthcare workers and for patients. Um, but then you might want to know about... You might want to know about the room they're doing that in because so often those little conversations where you maybe would take the patient out mm. to a smaller room, the ventilation in that room might be horrific. Yeah. Whereas in the bay, it might be fantastic. You know, mm. I, I don't think we always know enough about our working environment and about how effective the, our own ventilation systems are. And, you know, mm. maybe there's some really good assessments need to go on, an honest assessment of what, what's actually within our building and say, okay, in this room, it's fine to do that. And in that room, it's probably not so good to do that. Because I certainly saw transmission happening when I worked at the, you know, in the front line in very small rooms where people would have a meeting. And I could tell from the fact that, you know, everyone was flagging a bit in the meeting. I know we're all tired, but I've, I didn't have a CO2 meter at the time. I bet it had rocketed. And in some of those meetings, transmission happened, and yet it never actually happened in the clinical area. So I don't yeah. think we know quite enough about our own physical settings either. Yeah, look, I, I agree. I, I think I like to keep things simple. And the hierarchy of controls, I think, is a really nice framework that we can look at how we're approaching this and it's it's you know the first step is all about the design of these places and the and the hospitals and i think sometimes we can be really hard on ourselves because we're subject to the design that we're working in and the environment that we're working in and we don't always have the evidence to back us up on what we're doing we can only go on on what we know but clearly i think you know that hierarchy of um of risk with infection prevention control starting off with the design of facilities is really crucial and mm. perhaps I'm, you know, being a little bit utopian here and we're never actually going to get there because we've got, we're always going to be limited by budget restrictions and, and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, we need to, I think, sort of be a little bit kinder on ourselves because as a first line of defence, we're not always working in the best environment. Mm. Um, and so we need to, you know, accept the fact that sometimes we need to maybe compromise. Yeah, and we've heard this in previous podcasts from um, people like Jason Monty and Simon Witts and, and others where there's been a real call to say we need to 
get new standards for um, for things like healthcare when we're talking about new building design. And, you know, that's clearly not in our domain. That's, that's for others to work out. But, but I think what we can do is support that agenda because we do need that. We need really, if something's being built now, we need it to be future-proof and, um, and deal with the issues that we know that COVID and other infectious diseases can present. And, you know, unless we start changing building codes and building regulations that make these things enforceable, um, to understand, you know, that every room needs to be really well ventilated. I mean, mm. we just need to do it from the scratch and we need to do it when we're building or having major renovation. And I'm thinking, actually, okay, that's the intended purpose of that room, but what might it be used for in the yeah. future? Because people like me will go along and go, actually, we don't need a ward day room anymore. So we're going to turn that into a meeting room. And the ward day mm. room is somewhere where people went for like an hour a day to eat their lunch as opposed to somewhere where people are sitting in offices all day long and you might find the ventilation in there isn't suitable, whereas it might have been suitable for the original purpose. So, mm. you know, we, we, we try and be flexible in healthcare and we try and think, okay, that will work better there, that will work better there. But we don't always think, actually, what were the other things we needed to do to make sure that, that was safe? Was that actually factored in when we built this? And therefore, can we do this in a safe way? You know, sticking bay doors mm. on open wards because of norovirus ends up, not working for many other things because that's not the way the ventilation system was designed for actually sticking an extra wall and a door in and that's not how mm. the airflows would work so we have to think a little bit more about that as well mm. so what do you think any other big big ticket items? i mean my, my sort of as i said before my summary was about this idea of having contact and respiratory based precautions did you hear did you do you agree both agree with that or did you hear any other themes that we could use to take forward I'm quite happy with that, to be absolutely honest. It does make it simpler, and this feels quite rightly said. We have to make it simple because uh, you know we have to be able to sell this to other people. Um, I'm still not sure we completely understand everything we're doing. So mm. I think honest discussions with physicists, and and I think you know the era of genome sequencing actually may enable us to do fantastic research on really looking at what are the transmission pathways. Because to me, at the moment, they're a guess. You know, it's a here's a theory, and you know, that probably should fit. And that's what infection control has always been based on. That's you know that is what we're most likely to have happened. But I'm not sure that really works that well in the real world. And and I think with modern science now, we can do much better on our transmission pathways. And I, you know, I love the podcast we did with Pat Harris and Trish and uh, Belinda mm. up in Queensland, where they actually looked at their transmission pathways of community MRSA and was showing that there was no transmission going on in the hospital. They're able to stop all contact mm. precautions and isolation for it and save themselves millions of dollars a year. Mm. And that's the future, I think. You know, we've got to be much more open to using these technologies to actually work out what's really going on here and therefore where we're going to get the biggest bang for our buck. Never going mm. to be perfect, but it does enable us, I think, going forward, uh, to, to design better studies to actually get better information, but then mm. act on it, you know, because that's what we're not being great at. And I think many people have acknowledged in, in the podcast, we were wrong. And, uh, and and we have to say, do you know what? We got it wrong. And that's okay, because good scientists say, uh, I think I was wrong there, uh, and don't stick to the dogma. So mm. uh, I think yeah, a bit of honest, I, I think most people think we were wrong. And I think most of us know we weren't correct, but we weren't doing it out of malice it was out of what was what we thought was the best information at the time and we'd have better information now so yeah mm. i'll get i'll get off the soapbox now yeah no i i agree entirely man i think i think the, the direction we're heading in is the right direction and i think we need to bring more people into the conversation 
Um, but I guess the real question is um, who's going to who's going to act on this? Mm. Yeah, you know, I think we asked a couple of people that comment. I think um, I might have asked Kathy Dempsey that that uh, question. Um, and you know, I think it probably does need to start at the top. You know, a lot of a lot. And when I say the top, I'm talking about national bodies, groups, um, or, uh, and the WHO. I think we we need that um, first. And I think the refinements can come. We and just accept that whatever we start with is a new concept. Let's just say it's the best we've got now. We can modify it. We will modify it. Um, and uh, when when evidence changes or we come up with better ideas, we can just tweak it um, as opposed to saying we have to get it 100% right. I don't think we're going to when we come out with a new concept. It's going to be something that's going to evolve. And we, I think we've just got to be mature about that and go, okay, it's not going to be 100%, but let's accept it. It's better than what we've got. And let's see how it works and let's refine it and keep tweaking it until it's better than that better so uh, because i think that's where we're at risk of doing that when something new gets proposed we're either going to go yeah let's do it or it's going to be people who go but that's not right because of x y and z and that yeah. could be quite right but we don't want those things to stymie something being taken forward no i mean it's never going to be 100 percent right as you say no. and I, I mean i have enormous sympathy for people who have to write a national guideline because they're trying to write something for all settings mm. what i would like to see is a bit more transparency about how the decision was taken and maybe a bit more, you know, some some more public explanations about, okay, yes, that might be right, but we have to take into account of this factor, this factor, and this factor, because there's possibly mm-hmm. factors going on that we, you know, aren't shared at front frontline mm-hmm. grassroots uh, settings. So, and that then leads to a lot of discontent amongst mm. people who've got to implement a guideline, which isn't practical. And, and Christine Peters actually made a really good point, which is when we're writing a guideline, we should involve the people who've actually got to implement it. Yeah. Because we're particularly good at writing a guideline that nobody can actually do in the real world. And, and so, therefore, it's not going to work. So, I, th- I think involving frontline people in actually writing what we're suggesting people can then practically do is a very good thing to do. Yeah. And I was about to say exactly the same thing. You know, we, I think there needs to be a national, international approach. But as part of that, it absolutely has to involve different disciplines and people who have to implement this. Now that includes um, healthcare workers uh, who have to implement it. It has to include the people, the hospital level, the management level, who are going to try and have to implement this from a policy point of view, and you know, or a state or whatever it might be. So we certainly need to to include many people in that discussion. I mean, I have to say, I found it fascinating, and I found it fascinating going back and listening again. I'm not saying to everybody go and listen to all the podcast twice, but because you pick up different nuances as well when you hear something a second time. So I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed all of these discussions and I don't think I disagree with virtually anything people have said, um, but we, you know, it's coming up with something that's simple, practical, easy to sell, easy to implement is really difficult to do. Oh yeah. Mm. When all we talk about is continuum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the other thing we, that was touched on by a few people was, and again, I know this isn't, this is not the point of this podcast, but the, the concept of contact burst precautions versus sort of enhancing what we have by way of standard precautions. Uh, and maybe some of the things we do is contact precautions we don't need to do if we actually got some of the standard precautions elements right. 
Um, and we heard that in different contexts, I think, referred to by different people. And, and then quite, you know, people like Jenny uh, Wilson clearly talking about things like glove misuse, if you like, or gloves not being used appropriately and the risks that that actually then presents. So, you know, there's, there's that sort of other side, which I hope doesn't derail the, um, the other element around respiratory precautions, because I think that the other element, the contact standard precautions, take that. That also needs to get looked at, but it's, I, I don't want that to hold up the other part. Yeah, Maria, Maria and Belinda made that point as well. Mm. I mean, while we were actually walking around wearing gloves and whole body PPE for something mm. that is respiratory, yeah, mm. I, I think that needs a review. And it's not great for a sustainable planet either, to be honest, go completely in one direction. But uh, mm. yeah, it's been fascinating. Really enjoyed fascinating it. Fascinating indeed, yeah. So we hope that everybody has enjoyed this podcast series and um i hope this helps take this discussion forward a little bit more and um someone out there in the right roles and positions can uh, help drive this forward nationally or, or locally whatever it might be but i think the other important thing is people to to share their ideas as they come up with them and and when there are new ideas put forward really get engaged in any consultation process that might happen as part of that um so that all these sort of things can be factored in and considered. So we've heard from um, a range of people. Uh, I'm not going to call anyone an expert because I think we've had we've already had a discussion on who's an expert no, on this podcast. Like, so let's, let's not use that yeah, word. No, that's what I said. Straight away. So we've spoken to a range of people, predominantly though, in infection control, infectious diseases, microbiology, clinical scientists, behavioural scientists. And so we're aware of that, and um, we are going to have um, some other perspectives from the area of physicists to wrap this up and, and uh, air scientists. So um, just to wrap up this podcast series, we're going to have those perspectives and um, look forward to, to hearing those, um, but also want to thank you all for listening to this podcast series. Hope you found it um, interesting and um look forward to talking some more on this topic in future podcasts well maybe we'll leave this topic for a little while <laughs> yeah we won't come back to this for a little while yet not for a little while <laughs> we will be back though but we won't do it just yet i don't think. yeah i think uh, i think we've done this one to death thanks, for the time <laughs> yeah thanks everyone thank you